I want a revolution. I'm urgent for a re revolution. I'm desperate for re a revolution that starts with you and I loving ourselves, teach our children to be unconditionally loving of themselves. And to honor God. We say God is inside us. We say we're a temple. First John says everywhere love is God is. Well, maybe it's a little blasphemy to actually not love yourself if God is residing inside you. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prom. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. She is the Senior Minister for Public Theology and Transformation at Middle Church in New York City. She is an activist and public theologian, along with authoring several books, including a new book released this week, Fierce Love. Reverend Dr. Jackie, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much, and it's so good to be with you today. You good? I, I'm well. How, how are things in, in the East Village of Manhattan this morning? Oh, my goodness. It's a fall kind of day, and the, when we're through uh, with our conversation today, I'll be in a meeting about rebuild or not rebuild on the site where our, our church burned down in December of 2020. It's almost been a year. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's kind of surprising how it's surprising how as the one year anniversary comes, I can feel my body, my staff, my congregation are all having vibrations that are that are sort of acute and different, you know. Um, 
but we have been startled by our ability to do worship and connection uh, without this building. And we're looking forward to the insights to know what we do next. Yeah, so for a little bit, you know, for those that maybe aren't familiar with your pastoral work, maybe probably follow your work online or activist work, um, you know, you, you had this uh, extreme and unbearable pressure during the, the pandemic. On top of that, the actual, you know, sanctuary in which you all meet um, caught fire in December of, of 2020. You know, what was yeah. that experience like as a pastor? Yeah, thanks, Andy. It was, um, it was excruciating. I mean, I think we, we count ourselves really blessed that we had been broadcasting worship, you know, for years. Not a beautiful broadcast, you know, back of head sometimes, but sometimes a couple cameras. And so we had this, when we shut down the church in March of 2020, we shut it down grieving like the world did, but we shut it down, Eddie. We were not planned. We were not going to go back in the physical space. We wanted to get all ourselves inoculated and um, love on our people by being, uh, by being apart. So also when the fire happened, we had been out of the building, you know, since March. But it was stunning, catastrophically stunning to watch, you know, this 1892 dated building just burn down. Uh, the fire was hot. Um, it started in the building next door to ours. It slept on our wood structure and just took it down, everything but the facade. So it's a scorched skeletal remains of all the memories that were housed there, you know, the worship, the, the dance, the art, the puppets, the kids, the elders, the baptisms, the weddings, the funerals, the ways we hosted, you know, recovery groups and concerts and all of that. The memories don't go away, the love isn't burned down, but I gotta be honest to say, it's been hard when I walk by it to just look at it. It is traumatic to look at the rubble, to look at the, you know, the scorched stone. And so we, we have, we, we struggled, we mourned, we grieved, we still mourn, we still grieve. Some of our beautiful members went by the church on Dia de los Muertos and did an ofrenda there. And, oh my God, it was so beautiful. Just an offering of, you know, memories and pictures and um, items. Uh, that reminded them of their lost loved ones, but also of lost memories uh, in the church. So I have been letting myself grieve too. And uh, I think it's been able to help me let the congregation grieve, uh, to just be open when I feel brave and to be open when I feel sad, to know that I don't know and own that. And to shepherd them through the wilderness is what this is, it's a wilderness time where the spirit of God is with us uh, in a digital tent, if you will, has been with us in a digital tent. And now we have a temporary space we've rented um, in which we're beginning, we're worshiping and learning our way. Um, God's love for us is fierce. Our love for each other is fierce. And we are, we are making it with our tears and our hope for a better tomorrow. You know, I, I had the chance to, to go by, um, you know, kind of the, the skeletal remains, if you will, of, of mm -hmm. your church when I was in New York last month. And the closest mm -hmm. thing I can compare it to experience-wise 
is uh, Coventry Cathedral in Kettenberg um, in the UK. Mm. Uh, this shell mm. of a building that they intentionally left there from the bombing from the Germans during World War II. Oh, and yes, so that's right. It's deeply kind of looking at what remains of your churches is, is, is obviously a source of, of grief and sorrow. It's deeply theological and poetic and beautiful that out of the ashes of you know, out of this horrific experience for your congregation is, is coming something, you know, something beautiful. So I, I wonder, you know, obviously a lot of ministers listening to this probably said they didn't feel prepared for the pandemic, but have led well, you know, on, on mm-hmm. as I said, on top of that, you've had to deal with this, um, this, this right. fire, at, you know, so what prepared yeah. you to lead in this unique moment of crisis and destruction? Mm, gosh, that's a great question. I think I may, maybe I want to say my life uh, prepared me. My life as a Black woman in America, uh, my life as a, um, as a child uh, growing up with two parents who grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi, who, you know, migrated north to find a better life, Andy, and who, you know, went into the Air Force, my dad did, mom met him at the, on the base and really tried to raise kids in the context of a container, this nation, but it's fought, you know, fought. So then, so then what I get from my parents, honestly, is a kind of fierce, you know, loving upbringing that was filled with joy and hope and laughter and also discipline and, um, kind of scrapping our way to stay together in a relationship. My parents stayed together as a black couple, you know, till my mom died four years ago in a nation where they sometimes work two jobs, you know, to make it work. I mean, there's a kind of uh, faithful, persistent, resilient, don't say you can't miss, (laughs) that's in me and my siblings from my parents. And it prepared me to to do to be candid, to let people see my tears. I had grieved publicly when I lost my mom, but to let people see my tears, I've let people feel my anger, the anger and a carelessness that leads us to this place, Andy. I'm not pretending like you know it's not God's will or an act of God, as one person from that from that um, community. Um, where the, where the fire started said, it's not bad, it's just terrible. It's a terrible, careless accident. Let them feel the anger that I feel, I know they feel, and then and be real about it, which, which lets everyone move through the cycles of grief. It's better to say cycles of grief. Um, move through at their own time, in their own way, to feel that the laughing is good, the crying is good, the raging is good. The fist shaking is good. God is good, and can take our our stuff. And that I've I'm, I've been that kind of person uh, who thinks that the truth will set us free, and that the we as clergy don't need to pretend and have a persona that we're perfect and we got it all together because we don't. And I think people feel more comforted by our fierce candor and our moral courage that sort of 
you know, just admits our failings and invites God and our congregations to come with us on a journey to better times uh, that we can shape in the context of truth. So all that everybody should be able to learn from like, like a class online, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no. Although I think we should have those classes in seminary, right? Yeah. I think what if we took a class? I mean, we end up taking, some of us take CPE. Too many of us don't. So that place where we get to say, Andy, you know, I'm this kind of person under stress, you know, um, I'm this kind of person under stress. My go-to, I don't know, my Enneagram, my, my Esbrick, pick a language, my go-to way to be when it's hard is this. And I might need a spiritual director or a coach or a therapist to help me do it differently, or I might need to let go of my sense that God called me because I'm perfect, because I'm not. I think we could do better being prepared in the theological uh, spaces. And I also think we could help each other be better by being in community together, Andy, where we're not, where we're taking off our masks. You know, I say in my book, I, I learned how to have a mask when I was young to survive the world. But when I took it off, I could, I could breathe. And a breathing pastor is a pastor. Let's unpack a little bit of that as we dive into your book here. Your new book, Fierce Love. Uh, this is a visionary guide to charting a bold path to um, ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. Um, you wrote, you and I are the ones we've been waiting for to create better lives for ourselves and our communities and to build a better world together. All we need is the courage to imagine and the will to make it be so. How did you find so much hope when writing this book, again, during the pandemic and then managing the aftermath of your churches, um, you know, burning to the ground? Yeah. I hope in people, I hope in people, and history has taught me that I can hope in people, not just, not, not just our kind of, let's say, uh, let's call it our ecclesiastical history or our theological history, you know, the, the ones who are in our holy texts that, that we find sacred, Elizabeth waiting and becoming a mom, Moses finding a voice to liberate the captives. Um, Jesus, right? Rabbi Jesus, our mentor, really, really teaching us that communities can feed the 5,000, right? Can heal the leper and um, make a way out of no way. And I'm a Black person who grew up in the Black church, which was sometimes a multiracial church, but was shaped by my mom and dad's black church experiences. They, they were my first preachers and first teachers. And so the faith of my ancestors, proof texts that trouble don't last always, that joy does in fact come in the morning, that liberation comes with struggle, you know, that um, my mom went to church with Fannie Lou Hamer 
my dad grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, and it turns out that James Cheney, one of those three boys killed in the Freedom Summer, is buried in my father's family plot. So I'm thinking these kinds of um, activist, resilient, resistant, pray for your enemies while you do unto others <laughs> as you want them to you is just my family lore um, of uh, it's going to get better. My uncle George was a contemporary, a friend of Fannie Lou Hamer's and marched with her around, like marched in the bayou, the, the streets, the, the byways, the country roads of Sunflower County, registering people to vote, uh, withstanding his own kind of terror, uh, being shot at, uh, uh, threatened, but still going. He, he rocked me to sleep when I was a baby. I lived with my grandmother and him and my mom down in Mississippi when my dad went to Morocco. So I, I, I know, and I know not just from my life. I know from June Jordan, who I'm quoting. And I know from South African folks who worked against apartheid and from LGBTQ people who stood up for their lives, from the civil rights movement that led to the voting rights, that led to right freedom. We know how to do this. And I hope because I've seen it happen, the good people of moral courage, of ferocious moral courage and rule-breaking kindness actually know how to put one foot in front of the other and lead with love to new ways of being. So it's, 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 it's been proven. <laughs> but the kind of love you're describing is revolutionary. And yet it's yeah. grounded in Jesus. And for a lot of people, that's not been their concept of at least the Christian faith. So did, did you that's grow right. up with this kind of understanding of Jesus love? And if not, talk to us about your theological journey to come to this place of understanding. Oh, that's, that's the question. And that's great, Andy. And I think I did. I think my first encounter with Jesus was this Jesus in that way that you you know, you're young and it's more about stories and it's about um, an embodied, my grandmother, my mother's mother, praise for her enemies. Who are those people? You know, in a Southern context, Jim Crow segregated context for a woman born in like 1918. That, that Jesus, her Jesus was, was a way maker, you know, and, the bright and morning star, you know, these kind of beautiful metaphors that are in the black church tradition. Um, he, he is your friend. You have what a friend you have in Jesus. You know, all our sins, yes, but our grief to bear. I, I met that Jesus before I went to church. Uh, with my, on the knee praying with my mom. And I, I met that Jesus again when the first time I took communion and mom Dad is serving communion and mom says, this bread means God will always love you. And this cup means God will never leave you. So that Jesus was my friend. Uh, he wasn't mad at me. <laughs> he loved me just as I was, just like they did. He was, you know, son of God, but, but I was child of God. I think that's what I thought when I was little. And he loved all the people, you know, millions of stars placed in this guy by one God was a childhood song. As we grew up, it seemed to me, the theology of exclusion entered into my world. You know, the, we, we are more catechized, you and I, into 
who's not a part of this. The Muslims are not a part of this. The Jews are not part of this. I think for some white people, the blacks are not a part of this. It is, they are, they are black by design and left out by design and the nation belongs to the powerful and the, you know, that, that got into Christianity. And it got therefore into all of us. We might've pushed against it, but that imperialist, you know, so many of us are going and so many of us are not going to heaven, got into the church when the church got empired by Constantine and it has stayed in the church. So what unlearned that for me was the incredible seminary journey I was on. I really did have an incredible journey with feminists and womanists and liberation theologians and teachers who mentored me about, about the canon that is the canon of liberation and freedom and womanist writers like Dolores Williams and Katie Cannon and um, you know James Cohn as a liberation theologian uh, and literature like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, um, uh, James Baldwin, where the canon is outside of the Bible. And I just went back to school, I think, and I went back to childhood. So as I grew up, my faith regressed to my childhood faith of love, period. Love is what it's about. Love is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, the brown Palestinian Jewish boy that is one time homeless and then also a refugee is not calling us to imperial power. And he preached what he was calling us to. That the first will be last and the last will be first. That, the, that, that you know, uh, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to him. That we are called to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. So I don't know how we got to the other thing. I'm grateful for a journey that both in education and in experience reminded me that God is in the business of liberation, that Jesus came to liberate the captives. The spirit of the Lord is upon him to bring good news to the poor, sight to the blind, liberty to the captives, and a, and a sense of jubilee. What that I'm so grateful to be reminded that that's what Christianity is, is actually really about the revolution so, of love. So I recently shared with you, uh, uh, you know, a, a small group of people gathered in New York on a rooftop um, and was able mm -hmm. to hear you uh, give several talks that were based around the concept of this book. And one of the mm -hmm. things you talked about, both in those talks and in the book, that one of the greatest impediments to loving our neighbor is our inability to love ourselves. I, I wonder right. if you'll take us a little deeper there. That's so good. Thank you for that. Now, <laughs> um, though all the world's major religions have something about love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus pulls that wonderful scripture from Leviticus to Deuteronomy, puts it with love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, do unto others as they'd have, you'd have them do unto you don't withhold from someone that what you need for yourself. One tradition says, don't break anyone else's heart. But if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, and you took Greek, um, the word between those two phrases, love neighbor, love self, is the word os, which is an equal sign. 
And yet the church hasn't taught us to love ourselves. Let's be honest, right? And you're like, you're a worm. You're beneath love. You are not deserving of love. You need to have this faith because you are just a sinner, a loathful sinner that has fallen from grace. And God is going to punish you for an eternity for being who God created you to be. So let's, you know, let's, let's get to stepping into this faith so you can be saved from yourself. Wow. As opposed to, I love John P. John P. Key, the professor who might be retired by now, who who said that our theology is fallen. That we have a fallen theology about fallen. Um, Rabbi Kushner, in his book How Good You Have to Be, says he thought that the fall story is about evolution, humans becoming human. Regardless, I think, I think how. How do we find our way to love our neighbor if we think we're loathsome? Maybe the problem with with the world is we are loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And because we don't love ourselves, we don't love them. We think they are horrible because we think we're horrible. They think, we think they're undeserving unless they jump through hoops because we think we're undeserving unless we jump through hoops. We have a hole in our soul, too many of us, um, where love should be. We've, we've been taught that the mouthwash we use and the Toyota we use and the kind of job we have and the kind of money we make and our gender and our race make us what's powerful. All those things, those, ident- those superficial things and those deep things are not even really who we are. And you, you can't love a fake thing and you can't fake love. So the command to love, Andy, neighbor, starts with the command to love self. That's the way the clause is written. And we've just skipped it. And I think we skipped it for the same reasons that, for the, for the same imperial reasons. Isn't it wonderful to have a whole bunch of serfs who don't love themselves and who therefore are not worthy of success and who therefore are dependent on you to make the rules and tell them what to do and to manage them with fear as opposed to joy and love. I want a revolution. I'm urgent for a revolution. I'm desperate for a revolution that starts with you and I loving ourselves, teach our children to be unconditionally loving of themselves. And to honor God. We say God is inside us. We say we're a temple. First John says, everywhere love is, God is. Well, maybe it's a little blasphemous to actually not love yourself if God is residing in you. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Louisville's Kentucky's annual Festival of Faith will be held November 18th to the 20th. BSK will play a key role in the conference. As a sponsor, and Dr. Louis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, will lead a session entitled Black Faith's Encounter with Black Trauma, pain, and nihilism on Friday, November the 19th at 10 a.m. Join us for this event via live stream by visiting festivaloffaiths.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. 
These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. In the, the American religious landscape, there seems to be a divide theologically, and it would be easy mm-hmm. to caricature or characterize, you know, one group or the other, you know, progressives mm-hmm. seem to be, you know, quote, all about love and inclusiveness as their stance. And on the other side, you know, uh, conservatives seem to be exclusion, exclusionary and, and, you know, full of fear as their stance. But how, I wonder if you might be willing to how, how maybe a lack of self-love is expressing itself among with these two diametrically opposed groups, you know, in other words, how do we, how do we maybe sift through all the language and, 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 and all the stances to see how, how, how within Christianity, we, we, we don't express uh, love of self and that directly correlates to how, how we love lack of love for our neighbor, if that makes any sense. It totally does. And I, I think it's a really important question. Um, and maybe, you know, what, what's embedded in that question is, is, is an assertion that I would agree with that, you know, I don't have a theological agreement with, with, with let's say, the far right. But I could be just as judgmental, right? I can be just as intolerant. I can be just as inflexible. I can be just as much like the Pharisees if I want to as they are like the Pharisees, without really having a conversation, without really listening for the felt need, the felt sense, without listening for nuance, I can they them. (laughs) I can create a big old category called they that doesn't have uh, nuance, uh, conversation space, discovery space, collaboration space. And, And I think what we're all doing right now Christians don't have the market share on this only, is we're so polarized, we're so tribalized, and these conversations about us and them are just set in stone, and we're we're in our own echo chambers. We can't even play in another space. We can't dream in another space. So I would say at the root of any extreme, this is my psychological background, coming in the room with me, that those extreme places that put us in tribes are, 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 that exclude everybody might even be evolutionary, might, be, might even be base of brain resort to try to be okay. So we just regress and go, us, them, my camp, we're gonna survive alone. But the truth of the matter is, as we evolved, we understood that we needed larger, more complex communities in order to survive. And that's what we need today is to keep pushing ourselves toward a spiritual development and a, um, like a, a psychological development, a sociological development to begin to see you and your people and are my people. 
my people are your people. We know this is true. We know that families are divided around Trump politics, right, left, progressive, gay, straight, race. Families are divided around these ideologies. And how, how are we going to survive that? They're not speaking to each other. They're estranged because of these. But, but these are your people. So how, how can we learn, and I'm really trying to help us in this book, to learn to listen, to learn to be curious. I, I, I frankly am not trying to be converted to just an honest confession to theologies of exclusion. I'm really not. But I don't want to make people who disagree with me my enemy. I don't know that, I don't think the world is, is big enough for that right now. Our problems are too large. So I'm having a beautiful conversation with my brother-in-law in Chicago a little while ago about the environment and whether climate change is sort of inevitable and cyclical or whether we're doing it. And we don't agree on, on, on that, on, on where we're at on that. But we found ourselves closer, just closer, just by listening, just listening to each other uh, with an audience of family. You know how that goes, your turn. Jackie, no, your turn, Larry. <laughs> um, but just listening to each other, we find that we think we need scientists to not be so driven by the economy. That we don't. We need someone off the dime of someone's self-interest to really talk to the other the other side. Let's say, and find out what we really need to do and um, uh, uh, practical steps we can. We, we found a place. He did, I'm not convinced. I, I think I think we did it. Do you think it's inevitable? But well, we found a place where we could, could talk it out. And I think we did that because we love each other. And I think we love each other because we love ourselves. So my ego's not on the line when I'm talking to Larry. His isn't on the line. I, I'm okay when we're done. He's okay when we're done. Because there's something inside that says, I'm not just my opinion. And I'm not just, you know, this fight. I, I think... The progressives and the conservatives and everyone in between could use more conversation about self-love and how my survival is tied up in yours, and that's Ubuntu. My humanity is linked to your humanity. When I love myself, my self-interest and your self-interest both can be an agenda it can send me to the polls, can help me think about policy, can help me think it's November 2nd, how I vote. All of that stuff happens because there is a source inside me that causes me to love myself. And maybe that source is God. You know, you talk about in the book that um, the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that we avoid um, oftentimes can be a mechanism for setting us free or for uh, ensnaring us. Um, and you write mm -hmm, that there mm -hmm. uh, can be no reconciliation without truth, you know, right. but one of the challenges of speaking truth um, is that her contentious culture can't seem to agree on truth. And I think that goes even deeper to that. We can't even agree on a truthful perspective of ourselves so, you know, how do we overcome the obstacles of two sets of truths? And how, how does that begin with uh, self and self-deception before we can even pour over into what that means for us living in community with people who, who view things differently than we do? 
Oh, yeah, it's so important. Um, let's, let's start with how we overcome. Let's start with, you know, I think the exercises I write in the book about interrogating our own story. You know, I, I, I write from experience, Andy, of, of being a, a young person who just, I, was, I will tell you this, this is not in the book, but I was dating a guy and we were on a vacation and, and I can't swim. I'm really not a good swimmer. Like I, you know, I might not drown, <laughs> but I'm not a good swimmer. And so here we are on this vacation and this boyfriend wants to go, not snorkeling, but scuba diving, right? Scuba diving. Like, I can't swim. But I'm like, okay, let's go. I'll try it. And we do the training that you do and you, you swim in a pool for a couple of days and then suddenly you're in the water. I'm in the water, Andy, and I can't swim. I can't swim and I'm in the water, underwater, with a mask on and a, a action an oxygen tank on the back of me. And at some point I got really panicked and I just kicked myself to the top and took my mask off. This was an experiential a moment of, that led to this theory I'm having about you know, false self and patina and um, what happens when we disconnect from what's true in ourselves. Is there more than one truth about yourself? There is, there is more than one truth about yourself and truth can change over time. So I want us to be honest about that. I used to be afraid of telling the truth is the truth about myself. <laughs> but I wonder if there's a theological or spiritual practice that says uh, the goal of adulthood, the goal of adulthood psychologically is a cohesive identity. You took Eric Erickson, right? The, the, co- the goal of adulthood is the cohesive identity that is verifiable, that is that. Like not not you think you can fly and you can't, but the community around you sees you, loves you, and you exist. Again, back to Ubuntu. I am seen, I am known in this community, and that makes me real. I think the striving of an adult is to get your story straight, is how I would say it. And this is a conversation with God for those of us who do God. Who am I in the world? These are the questions that we are yearning for an answer, these existential questions. And the stories that tell us who we are, we pick them up, we look at them, we do it with a spiritual director, with a therapist, with a good friend. What got me here? What, what is the arc of my life? What do I want it to be? How can I get there? What do I need to let go of? What, what do I need to celebrate as a, as a, as a superpower, which is my euphemism for a spiritual gift, they can get me there. I'm a good forgiver. I learn lessons well. I make mistakes, but I always apologize. I used to not apologize, but I do now. I made amends. I went back and fixed that. Um, I'm, I, I, I cry easily, which means I'm sensitive, which means I might have a temper, but I'm learning to m- mitigate that by taking a breath, you know, all of these things, when put in the light, the truth does set us free and allows us, I think, to write a new story, Andy, in our, in our, in our communities that can help us, our therapists can help us, our preachers can help us, our pastors can help us, God can help us. And our biblical texts 
give us examples of those transformational moments that can happen even at the end of life, like the dying thief on the cross. So it is, I think, a source of hope for me that we do change. Um, We can change. We can be transformed. And this is a lifelong journey. Now I see in a mirror dimly and then I'll see face to face. It's what's in my mind when I say that. And we're becoming all the time more like God, more like Christ. And we can do that with, with intention. One of the things that's so relatable about this book is that you write with such transparency about your life. You know, again, if you're asking readers to examine their own stories, you have mm-hmm. given us uh, portions of your story. And as a pastor, we already live in a in a fishbowl, especially our, our families. So, <laughs> yes, you know, what, what inspired you to write so openly about challenging topics like sex and sexuality and marriage and, and mental health? I, I'm a little crazy. That's why I did that. Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading my audio book and I was like, what is wrong with you? Why did you tell that story? Oh my God. <laughs> what was wrong right there? Why did you do that? I really, I really started writing and there were these spaces where I thought, you know, you can't tell that. You, know, you can't say that. And I read the manuscript and it just felt so fraught. You know, it felt fraught to not tell the truth. And I just decided to dive in. And I don't don't tell everything in my life. Um, I tell lots of good things as well. But I tried to use my story to push along the concepts and to model what I hope the reader will do. Maybe they won't write a book, Andy, but maybe they'll really partner with their spouse or their partner or their best friend to go on this journey of getting it out, getting it told, so we can get it straight. Literally, prayer gets it straight, right? Um, You know, exercise gets it straight. Meditation gets it straight. But none of it gets it straight with a big lie in the middle. And we can, we can say, you know, that's your family's business and don't tell it or whatever kinds of Western constructs we have about hiding out in public. I just think people die hiding out in public, Andy. I think children die because they have to hide out in public. I think women stay in relationships and die because they have to hide out in public. I think abusive situations happen because we have not taught tell the truth inside the church right what about if we just what about if we just get honest but i'm modeling it i went out there yes i did you know for for pastors who who rightly are pastoring in cultures in which vulnerability can be used as a weapon against them um you know what what, what kind of coaching would you give them on why in a more authentic spiritual formation begins with honest stories about ourselves? I'm just so glad you asked it that way. Because I really am not saying, hey, y'all, let's stand in our pulpits and just 
you know, take off our clothes, you know? <clears throat> there is a kind of safe space, brave, safe space to be cultivated. And the pulpit isn't, you know, necessarily the place, place to tell all your story. <clears throat> In fact, it is, it is not. Let's just be, let's go on the record to say that. But I think it is always the space to be authentic. And that's not what you say only, it's how you be. I'll say tell the truest truth you can about yourself in every context. The truest truth you can in every context. And then you need a safer context, a braver context, a more appropriate context to get it all said. Like a person chooses to write for, run for office. I'm, I'm choosing to say I'm an expert here, and therefore you get to interrogate my, you know, my stuff. And as an expert theologian in residence, in your context, my friends who are clergy, people have a right to interrogate your candor. They don't need to know all your business for you to be candid. Boundaries are appropriate, Andy. That's what I'm saying, right? Boundaries are appropriate. But they, I think they get to expect gospel preachers to be straightforward, to take risks, to be vulnerable. Um, because vulnerability is, is the stuff of Jesus. So practice. Have your have your buddies, your your um, accountability group. I have that right. I say that in my book. I have accountability partners, and my girlfriends with whom I have champagne and pound cake. You know my friend Mackie who. Okay, your turn. Okay, your turn. Tell each other stories. Are we doing what we said we're going to do? My friend Michael, who used to be my pastor, who is now one of my best buds. Um, where I can just really be crazy and just tell myself, and my husband. I have a therapist, but my husband is my best accountability partner on myself. And I, in that space, I'm all transparent. Yeah. Here it all is. And because I'm doing that there, I can have boundaries and be candid and, and have appropriate boundaries in spaces where that's the right strategy. Does that make sense, Andy? It does. Yeah. Yeah. The the main takeaway I, I just heard from what you said is that this coming Sunday I should strip down naked before I preach. You uh, should. That's right. You got it right. And, it, and one of the prophets did it. You know. Naked, yeah, but because you're going to be naked, you're going to wear your best underwear, right? <laughs> just before you're naked, you're having your best underwear. That's what it is. <laughs> that's our goal. Um, I know we got to wrap up our time, but I, I wonder if I could ask you one last question, which you know. Uh, what what stories do you hope to hear from your readers after they finish this book? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I hope to hear. I hope to hear Jackie's a black woman with dreadlocks. Who's progressive and you know straight married and i read this book and i saw myself in it because the story she told 
worked for me as a white man. The stories she told worked for me as an Asian young woman. The stories she told, the practices that she put on the table worked for me as a Latinx person on the border. I hope I hear that the book resonates beyond Christian, you know, beyond Black, um, to human. I hope it resonates to human. And the people will write me and go, I got it. I am the one I've been waiting for. Yes, I am. I'm going to do a small thing every day, uh, a small act of kindness that will change the world. Or, yes, 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 I get it. I'm forgiving myself for the thing that makes it hard to love myself. Um, yes, yes, Jackie, all these people are my people. My tribe is increased. And Jackie, I am joining you to believe assiduously in love. Love period. The book is Fierce Love. Our guest is Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. You can follow her work at JackieLewis.com. Jackie, I'm, I'm humbled that you would make the time to have this conversation. Um, thank you for, for calling us to believe assiduously in love and the fiercest love of all. Oh, thank you so much, Andy. Let me correct my URL, JackieJLewis.com. The J's in there and they won't find it without it. But I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful that we met on the roof <laughs> and that we will be doing the revolution together. Thank you very much. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cvf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.